And I went into the city, got a contract written up by a very, very large law firm, basically turning myself into an aerospace company. And then I went to the home office and said, look, there is a shortage. There is a shortage on the shortages list. I've just set up a new aerospace company. I need to bring my staff over to the UK. How bizarre. I mean, I just, I <laughs> just the, the way that you have gone from doing fashion shows, working in the city to stalls and, and Carnaby Street to clubs and then to aeroplanes. <laughs> Do you ever, ever have any interest in aeroplanes? No. Welcome to Power to Speak, the podcast. I'm Jackie Goddard, and it's my mission to make entrepreneurs, leaders, and speakers excited about sharing their business ideas, to watch them transform from fearful to fearless in front of their audience. Power to Speak, the podcast is aimed at those aspiring to be leaders, entrepreneurs, and speakers, giving them the opportunity to learn from those that have been there, seen that, and got the t-shirt. I discuss with them how they've used their creativity, curiosity and humility to create their success. Welcome to Power to Speak, the podcast with my guest today, Jason de Jonga. Welcome, Jason. Lovely Thank you, Jackie. Lovely to have you. Pleasure to be here. Jason, you are not here with me in the UK. You are in a very sunny and very hot Algarve. Yeah, so I'm currently sitting in Silge. In where? Silge. Silge. Which is a small city inland between Foro and Portimao. Uh-huh. About 20 minutes from the beach. It's absolutely beautiful. It's incredibly hot. And I've understood that it has its own microclimate. Oh. Which means that it's about six degrees warmer than it is on the coast. Yeah, I can imagine it. I can imagine it would be. And did you, did, you were explaining earlier that you're in, in this, in, um, the city walls yeah well, um, i'm currently living within the city walls um in a what is a, t- a typical sort of portuguese type house it's like a terrace house that we have in the uk but hotter hotter yes. um, and the walls are thicker because the thicker the walls the more it keeps it cool in the daytime and because we're in the city walls we're not technically or properly allowed to have aircon so I just have a fan. And I think outside today is touching 42. Yeah, I, I was looking at the, the weather this morning on the news and actually, yeah, the whole of Europe seems to be in the, in the midst of this horrible heat wave, which I think we've got coming to us to, you know, in a couple of days' time. I think it's heading... Which means heading a massive 24. Yay! <laughs> well, I don't think we're even 24 at the moment, but yeah, it feels warm here. Yeah. feels warm let me explain what you do well I don't think I can explain what what you do Jason but I will I will give the listeners your LinkedIn description and here it says you are a polymorph uh, helping you cut costs recruiting but that's like the simple bit you like to be referred to as a polymorph and a wide boy so perhaps, perhaps you can explain a little bit about what that is. I don't quite like the idea of an entrepreneur or solo entrepreneur. Um, my family are from the East End of London. My background is Jewish immigrants that fled from whoever wanted to kill them at the time. There was a succession on my mother's side. It was the Russians and the Tsars. And on my father's time, he fled from Poland, from Portugal, not Portugal. Sorry, I'm in Portugal at the moment. He fled from 
Holland. But most Dutch Jews had fled from the Inquisition in Spain. Right. So, you know, my, my family grew up working in the markets. Um, my father was also quite mental. Um, at 22, he drove around the world. Okay. In 1962, three mates of his got a transit van. Um, he wasn't invited, but the night before, one of the guys broke his leg. And my father ended up in the transit van. And for various reasons, him, he ended up just on the Turkish border or on his, or the Yugoslav border on his own. Everybody had come back to the UK. So instead of coming back, he decided to go see what Yugoslavia was like. And then, well, Turkey's next door. Let's have a look at that. And then Iran, Iraq, drove through Central Asia, um, ended up in India where he sold the van to a teacher, then toured the Indonesian islands, Philippines, ended up Singapore, got a boat over to Northern Australia, hitchhiked <laughs> across Australia. I, I want someone to write his book. Got passage on a ship to San Francisco, hitchhiked across America, and then phoned his mum and said, I'm broke in New York, can you send me some money for my trade plane fare? <laughs> um he is a character and so is my mother but there is a great book in that because he was as far as i can work out oxford university did a bunch of students did it a couple of years later and wrote a book about it right but he actually did it in 1962 and we how long did it take him so how long did it take him oh yeah wow and he stood my mother up because he couldn't telephone because they didn't have mobiles then <laughs> He was meant to go out for dinner with her and his mate said, do you want to come on the trip? So and so bust his arm or leg, whatever it was. So he left a message to my mother and then disappeared for a year. And when he got back, apparently she told him that he had to take her out to a very nice cinema in Leicester Square and she wanted a box. So he said, yes, I'll take, I'll do the box. I'll buy the box. We'll see you there. He bought chocolates and flowers and she never turned up. <laughs> <laughs> but they've now been married for, what am I, um, 56? So they've been married for 50 years? No, no, I'm lying. They've been married for 58 years. Uh, wow, that is, that's an amazing story. But you obviously I'd love someone to write his book. Yeah. It, or their book. It would be, a, you know, I mean, he was in places that you just couldn't even go now. You know, I, I actually I did an interrail back in the eighties and went through Yugoslavia, obviously before it was all broken up. And yeah, it was it was like a different world. I mean, literally people with ox drawn carts and hay baling and with forks and things like that. It was incredible. No, we've got, he's, got pictures, he's got pictures of him in Tibet. You'd be shot now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's you a know, completely different world now. Completely different world. Yeah. No, you know. And the stories, you know, they were in the trams and it fell off the road one night and it was pitch black because there weren't roads and there definitely weren't street lights. And in the morning, they get woken up in the tent. They didn't know what to do. They couldn't see anything. They pitched the tent. In the morning, they got woken up and there's all these guys pulling the van out of the ditch. They were on their way to the fields, but one of the guys recognised it as an English uh, transit 
And it was like, I fought with the English in the war. I fought with the English in the war. I recognised number plate and they weren't even awake. No, amazing stories. Amazing. No, no, no. I've got, he's got pictures of him in like Phuket and it's a beach. And if you look really closely, there is a heart. He's got pictures of him in Bali and in Passer on the beach and there's just one yeah. white flag. Yes, yeah. And nothing for miles. No. Now, you can't put down a beach towel. I'm going to know that because my office is in Indonesia. Is there is there something then in in that background that that makes you the person that wants to travel and do, and do what you do? Because obviously we will we will touch on everything you've done, Jason, because you've done an incredible amount of different things. With, alongside, you know, obviously no, because office in Indonesia at the moment. If you grow up with a father and a mother who have done everything, you tend to a bit, you know, the, the idea that you can't do anything doesn't cross your mind. You know, in a different way, my mother grew up in the East End. She was a window dresser at Liberties. Um, she was incredibly beautiful and wore ridiculously beautiful clothes and made my father stand two streets away when he came to pick her up because she refused to have him come to the door because he was an embarrassment. Um, but she obviously saw something in him. She always, There was obviously something there that she liked. Oh, well, yeah, her. I mean, look, well... 55 years? No, I'm 56. So that's 58, 59 years together. We've got to be sunny. Yes. And, you know, watching them, you know, my father built businesses. My father lost businesses. My father built up an incredibly massive chain of uh, souvenir stores across London. And then George Bush, George Bush decided to go to war. And that was the entire business, 22 years of his life, went in 24 hours. My mother stepped forward and set up a catering business, making, you know, for weddings, for mitzvahs, um, lavoyers in the Jewish community. And between the two of them, they made sure that they continued their lifestyle. They're by no means rich, but they have a very, very nice lifestyle and they have worked their way up from nothing. Yeah. You know, my father had calipers on his legs. He grew up with um, calipers, he had osteomyelitis, um, and he was, they were planning to cut off one of his legs because of the disease, but my grandmother, who is also pretty interesting to be honest, she was married five times, ran an illegal abortion clinic, sold black market drugs for locals, ran a nightclub in Soho, all to pay for the incredibly expensive medication that he needed so that he wouldn't end up losing his legs right so somewhere down the line somewhere in our family we're all slightly mental <laughs> well what was you what was it like growing up then in that environment i mean were you did you have that kind of entrepreneurial skill set right from right from a child we worked i mean at 13 i got i started working I wasn't the big ugly git that I looked like now. Back then, I was very small, very skinny, and very effeminate. And my uncles had stalls in Wembley Market and Walthamstow. So I went to work. I worked from 13. You know, I went to school. My parents paid for me to go to a very small, very weird private school. There was only 120 people in the school. Um, we grew, I grew up working. I grew up loving working. I used to get up on a Saturday morning, 
My first job was at Wembley Work Wembley Market working for Alan, who was my cousin and his father. Um Moisha. And then I got a job working at Lillian Skinner in Oxford Street on a oh, Saturday. God. Yeah, I remember that Lillian Skinner, yeah. Um so that but that was like 13, 14, but I did my schoolwork. I walked away with 11 O levels, four That's A levels. Good. Very good. No, I was a lousy student. They hated me. My teachers hated me. My, my, my classmates hated me. Um, I was very effeminate. I was called Puffin Boots because I walked around with big DMs and I had long hair. Totally on PC now. Because, and I used to go to a lot of Jewish youth clubs. And Jewish youth clubs, we all had... There used to be fashion shows that, all, you know, each youth club would like... There would be a theme and there would be a fashion show. And one of the rules was that there had to be at least one boy. And because I had really bad asthma, I couldn't do sports. So I did the fashion shows. I was the one boy. Yeah. And then somewhere around 14, puberty hit. And all of these boys suddenly realized that there were these other human beings that were a slightly different shape. Oh, shit. Jason knows them all. Because he does all the fashion shows with them. Yeah. And he knows all the cutest ones because they're the ones in the fashion show. And he's like, oh, Jason, do you want to come out on Saturday night? I'm like, we're having a party. That was where I started, uh, which is where I got my weird taste for fashion. But from an early age, I'd always not conformed with no yeah. particular intention to conform. I'm not quite sure why. Um, yeah. At school, I refused to do my homework. Um, I mean, it just it just seems that there's, there's something quite creative in that sort of non-conformity. It's that you know a, a mindset like that. that that means you you want to stand out somehow. I don't know, and I don't know whether it because I'm the same. I end, I went to fashion college. I should have I was a designer for a while. I, sh I should have been an actor. I ended up going to, to to drama school, but I don't know whether it was just a um, a creativity, a way of self-expression that I needed to get out there, or whether it was just a way of getting attention. I'm sort of along Malcolm McLaren, John Lee Rotten thing. It was just there to be done and have fun. Yeah. Um, you know, it wasn't, you know, I went to a private school the first year when I was 11. I came bottom of the class. Christmas came along, I came bottom of the class. The headmaster called my parents in and said, your son is very clever but totally lazy and unless you can improve, you're wasting your money. Because it was he was that type of yeah. headmaster. I mean, one of the things that he used to say was, "I'm not here to teach you stuff. I'm here to teach you to think, because that's what you get out of a school—the ability to think." So, come the exams, I came third. Nobody expected me to come third. Most people were horrified that I'd come third. Um, <laughs> The headmaster called my parents back in and said, look, he's improved. He's done really, really well. It's worth keeping him here. Next term, which was Christmas, I was bottom of the class again because it meant I actually had to hand in homework. And I would actually take work home and I would do other homework rather than the homework that I was meant to do. I have no idea why I just refused to do it. So I was bottom of the class again. Then I was bottom of the class. And the headmaster called my parents in and said, look, is a lazy bugger. He has no intention of conforming, but 
we're here to make sure that he gets O level so that he can go on and do something. And as long as he does that, then you can decide whether it's worth paying for. So my yeah. entire school year, career was bottom three, bottom three, top three, bottom three, bottom three, top three. <laughs> which didn't actually at the time make me very popular with any of the students. You know, the clever kids hated me because I kept beating them without doing any work. And the thick kids hated me because I wasn't thick enough. And then I worked Saturdays and Sundays, so I always had money in my pocket. And, and, lots, just, of girl, and lots of girlfriends. Yes, I had a lot of girlfriends because I was back then being a fat and cute and skinny was quite popular. Yes. So how, how did you end up in the city? Um, how did I end up in the city? I finished college. I went to Camp America. Oh, yeah. I did Camp America, which I made, I really, really, really enjoyed. Um, I met a young lady out there. Well, I met a few, but one of them became very fond of me and she wanted me to come back and come to her prom with her. And her dad worked for Merrill Lynch. And I was like, look, I ain't got any money to come back to America for, you know, a couple of weeks. So daddy introduced me to a friend of his who worked for Dean Witter in London. And at a lot of things back then, a wink and a nod. And I was suddenly working in a Eurobond in the back office. But I suddenly had a job in the city. I was Eurobond. At the time, it was uh, in the reconciliation department. But I moved very quickly up onto the trading floor as a trade, you know, junior trader. Yeah. I didn't particularly fit in there either. Did you enjoy it? It was a lot more fun than it, it would have been today. Today I would have lasted about five minutes. Um, back then, I was good enough at what I did, and I was good, to be able to walk in in the yellow suit. And we're talking 80s here. Was it Was it the 1980s? Yeah, it was the 80s, but I wasn't... I wasn't I walked into the office in a yellow suit with bananas on it. I walked in when William Hunt first opened his shop in, uh, around the back of Seven Dials in Covent Garden. I was one of the first people through the door and I walked in to the office in one of his suits, which back then was very loud. Um, I wasn't a team player. I didn't fit in there. I was obnoxious but not in a loads of money sort of way. It was just, I just didn't really care. Um, I made money for the company and they put up with me and some of the scandals I caused. And then some idiots in the department caused some real trouble and 60 people were fired or basically they made 60, the entire department redundant except for three of us who they kept on. And I stayed there for a while and I found it really, really, you know, you're sitting in a big room and there used to be like 60 of you and now there's three. And most of my team moved to a broken house. And I went, I got a phone call and it's like, look, there's this new computer system called Bloomberg. And you know about computers and you were the techie at the office. Do you want to come and join us? Dean went to pay me a very large Christmas bonus. I resigned the second it had cleared. <laughs> went to FBI, realised that broking was not something I could ever do. And FBI is not the, not the police? No, 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 it's Fundamental Brokers Inc. Right. They specialised in broking um, American government bonds, but they wanted to branch out into other areas, and one of them was the bonds. And I sat there and I got, it was boring. I'm not a broker because broking means being nice to people that you don't like. 
and I'm not good at that. And then one morning I was sitting there because it was down at Sugar Keys by the Tower of London. Yeah. And there was a coach of young ladies getting off a coach. And I'm like, why am I sitting in here and not out there chasing them? So I went and resigned and left the office that morning, literally. They got off the coach. I was out of the office an hour later. Did you find them? No, but <laughs> it was a learning curve. Um, my father had a souvenir business. I'm like, Dad, I'm bored. What am I going to do? I'm not going to go back in the city. And he was like, well, one of the girls has got a souvenir store on Lower Regent Street. Why don't you do that for the summer? And I was like, well, no, I've worked, I, I, I worked in the city. I'm not going to work on a souvenir store in Lower Regent Street. And he goes, look, she's pregnant. Then the stalls back then, they were given out to people in perpetuity from the Boer War. So they were handed down. From the Boer War? Yeah, from family to family at like a peppercorn rate, really. So I went and, I can't remember her name now. So I went and met her and I'm like, I've got nothing else to do, it's the summer. And it was this little tiny stall, seven foot by, four foot deep, seven foot wide. And I'm like, well, what am I going to do here? Well, in the first week, I sold 11,000 postcards. They <laughs> cost me a penny, and I sold them at 10 pence each. And we're talking late 80s, early 90s, more than I was actually earning in the city. And no tax. Oh, sorry, I did pay tax. I, wrote, I promise I paid tax. But I know Not those, it. you know, it's it's like the ice cream vans and, and all, no. all of those stores. They are really, really sought after. I mean, there's like major wars go on. And, and that is the reason why is because they, they make so much money. No, but this was, these were given out by the government. You know, like right. at the time, there was a waiting list for a stall for like 20,000 people. Um, so I started to do that. And then I bought a clothes shop in Carnaby Street. When I started off as a souvenir shop, realised that I really didn't want to sell souvenirs, but my father was giving them to me. And that paid for the rent. And then we turned it into a clothes shop. And then we had a record shop. All on so, Carnaby Street? Yeah. Well, we had a clothes shop and a record shop on Carnaby Street. And a, there was a bar in the basement, but that didn't exist, I promise you. <laughs> it's good. It sounds um, like a speakeasy. Yes, exactly. Yeah, opened at 2 o'clock in the morning. And it was then we opened up. We got involved in running some clubs because I knew some DJs. So we ended up running I, some clubs. Can I can I just go back though? Because you know, the, I mean, and we must have literally. I'm 57, so we sh we were probably knocking around the same places at the same time. Um, so what did you think then? You you'd done this job in the city. What was your superpower at that point? What did you? What were you so good at? that made you successful in what you were doing I don't even at, that, know. at that point? I was never told, I wasn't a massively successful. I made enough money to have a three-story gaff in West Hampstead, be able to go out, be able to travel around the world. I never really even thought about the money. It wasn't important. The money has never been important. Money is only something that you have for what you want to do. If you want to stick it all away in a pension and live to your hundred, great. Or you want to go and party like it's 1999. I didn't even think about it back then. It wasn't. It was like I'd always worked. I'd always have money. I'd always earned my own money. My parents have always helped me out. But, you know, from 13, I think at 17, which was like 19. At 17, I was earning more money on a Saturday and a Sunday than most people were earning five days a week. In fact, the first, my first job in the city paid the same as the money I earned on a Saturday and Sunday. 
which it was all about just doing what I wanted to do. Yeah. And it is so, I mean, obviously we said earlier about the polymorph and the wide boy. So well, it, is, is there an element then of the wide boy? I mean, I just wonder what that is because there's obviously something in you and I, I, it sounds to me like it comes to your, you know, back to your parents and the work ethic that your dad had and the sort of family in the, the market stalls and stuff. Both of them. Both of them had an amazing, you know, an amazing work ethic and both of them looked after each other in a way that you so rarely see now. Mm. My mum at one point really wasn't well, and my father, you know, dropped everything, including, you know, the business and everything to look after her. And then when George Bush decided to bomb Iran, Iraq, and my mother stepped up and created a catering business that ran for 30 years. Why, d why did that make a difference, uh, the bombing of Iran? Was that where the... He ran a souvenir, he built up a business with like 16 or 17 souvenir shops in London plus manufacture, plus import, and the second that Mr. Bush bombed, there were no tourists. No tourists, right. And if you have shops in London, you realise very, very quickly, if you're not, you know, it's not like being out of London, you know. Yeah. Rents are very high, staff are very, costs are very high, and if there's all of a sudden, and back then, the big tourists were the Americans. Yeah. And they stopped travelling. We're not ending here, just taking a quick break. And we'll be back very soon after we hear from our friend, fellow podcaster and master of verbal communication, Andrew Thorpe. We're all in the persuasion business, whether that's pitching to a potential client, selling ourselves in a job interview or convincing a teenager to tidy their room. How we frame our message and how we deliver it makes all the difference. And this is the theme of my podcast, Leaning Forward. I'm Andrew Thorpe. I'm a speaker, a trainer and a storyteller. And I'd love you to tune in to our latest episode. You know, one of the, I remember him saying one of the shops went from 20 to 25,000 a week to 500 quid. And my mother yeah. stepped up to the plate and said, oh, her and her friend were making pretty little things to go on people's mitzvahs and five sugared candy almonds in a little net. And my mother turned it into a business that had like 20, 25 staff. Yeah. I was doing 200 people, 300 people weddings every week. And then all of the, well, the Lavoie, yeah, I'm not going to talk about Lavoie. Lavoie is a funeral if you're not Jewish, but doing yeah, I, all that sort of stuff. So I've always watched my parents create and never go down. You know, my father's original one, um, the Hackney Council, oh, I can't, what's it called? When they, they take over a property, compulsory purchase, because they wanted to turn the area into, uh, for blind people, a, a working area where there would be factories and stuff that catered for blind and disabled people. Right. So there was a compulsory purchase order from my father's factory where he got about 20 pence in the pound of value. 15 years later, it was empty. They never did anything with it. Yeah. But they got off, they got off their asses, they got off their feet, and they just started again without blinking. Yeah. Yeah. You know, my father ended up doing mini caps for a while. My mum built up the catering business. He went and worked for her. And then he used to annoy her incredibly because she'd spend all day working in the kitchen, working to her fingers to the bone from seven in the morning, blah, 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 blah. And my father would glide around outside in his dinner jacket, meeting and greeting. And at the end of the evening, they'd all walk up to him and go, 
Thank you very much, Harry. That was a really, really good function. My mother was never very happy with that bit. No, no. <laughs> I she didn't come herring out of the kitchen. Tell him different. Well, you know, I mean, it was a business and she winds him up about it. But, you know, everybody loves Harry. That's my father. <laughs> so when you so you started the shop in Carnaby Street and oh. was that because of the the the, the fashion side of you? Yeah, well, we started for the souvenirs. I was in partnership with my father. We wanted to do something and I wanted it to be fashion. At the time, I knew a lot of DJs and I knew a lot of people that were on the club scene. So we gravitated towards that sort of thing. Um, the landlords that owned Carnaby Street weren't very happy that I was there because I'd bought the lease off of Benetton. Okay. And they didn't really, and then they, three years later, they tripled the rent. So the rent for, went from 40 grand to 125 grand a year. Made it pretty much impossible to earn money. Yeah. Went and spoke to the guy. I, you know, I put on one of my proper suits and went up and spoke to the landlords. And the guy was there, look. I'm here for three years. If I increase the yield by 15%, by the time the shit hits the fan, I'll have left. And it won't be my problem. And while I could have punched him in the face, I'd also worked in the city and I could see where he was coming from. Yeah. You know, it, we were just a commodity. And what they had done is there was one tiny little shop in the, at the right at the bottom of Carnaby Street and they'd leased it to a young fashion designer on a two-year lease with the first year rent-free with a get-out clause towards the end of the two years. So basically, he was paying one-third of the rent, but then they justified it by saying, yes, but someone's willing to pay the new rent, so you've all got to pay it. And the guy, you know, they lasted exactly as long as the lease, you know, so basically yeah. they paid for two years rent, they paid yeah. six months. So yeah. it and it, it back then that was how you could justify a rent increase. Yeah. So I moved out of Carnaby Street, but we had I by that time I had stalls and a shop in Camden and as well. And we sort of got into manufacturing clothes and I sort of opened up an illegal bar in Berwick Street and we got involved in clubs and ran that for a few years. But I was young and it was fun. Yeah. Did that um, make money? Did you make money from the clubs? I made enough to continue a lifestyle. Yeah. And that, again, that was all it ever was. You know, I was never thinking about a pension or a future. It was like I lived in London in the 80s and 90s and I was right in the centre of Soho and there wasn't a better place in the world to be. Really. Yeah. Yeah. I remember you know, it well. I remember, you know, we had the money to fly out to Machu Picchu for solo, you know, eclipse parties and Barapur National Park in India. And we used to do that. And that was it, you know, bugger off down to Ibiza in the summer. Sounds perfect. Um, I imagine it's something like the people that said that they were alive in London in the 60s. It was brilliant. Yeah. And then yes. it all got slightly dark and I had to leave. I decided to leave the country for a while. Yeah, I mean, I, I remember clubs like the Wag Club and Fubert's and uh, was it the Beetroot? I don't that know. was a bit before Beetroot, but I was like Solaris, Le Solaris Legends, SW1. Yeah. Um, but I remember the Beetroot. I was just coming into the clubbing scene back then. So you had like, um, that was just, a, and the Mud Club. Oh, the Mud Club, yeah, yeah. So we had all of that. And then, you know, Hole in the Wall down in Vauxhall, the only time I go south of the river. 
my father actually still has i believe he still has the original passport because the wag is the whiskey a go-go from the 60s yeah and there was the one in london the one in uh Jean-Pan, and the one in um los angeles and you used to be able to get a passport that would allow you to go to any of them in the world not that anybody then could afford to go anywhere in the world no. but yes i believe somewhere at home in one of the boxes he's got the original passport so yeah, yeah but there was no. a whole underground club scene and then yeah. there was all of the places that just didn't have names so when did, obviously you said it got a little bit dark is that when you sort of left the uh left that business completely what did you do i left that scene completely went traveling came back to london didn't really know what i was going to do ended up working for somebody i know that ran a recruitment business worked with them for a while while i was trying to figure out what to do next and then i noticed that people were looking for stress engineers and there was a, a magazine called flight international and basically there was a shortage in europe of stress engineers didn't know what a stress engineer was but i'd met somebody while i was traveling traveling in Singapore had given me his card that was said basically I'm a stress engineer. It turns out that he was from Indonesia, Sahato and Ibrahim in the 60s and 70s. They were the dictator and his mate decided to turn Indonesia into an aerospace hub like Cessna and Embraer. So they took the best engineers that were coming out of uni and paid for them to go and work at Cessna, Embraer, Airbus, Boeing for like 10, 15 years, brought them all back to Indonesia. But at the time, nobody wanted to buy airplanes made by the Indonesians. And if you're old enough to remember, they were, my staff used to tell me that the reason that they, on Transparency International's corruption list, they were always third from the bottom. Right. And they used to tell me that the reason that they were third from the bottom was because they paid the other two off. Right. Um, so I, I knew there was a shortage. I was very, very lucky. I got hold of the lead engineer at GKN on the other way, who had worked with an Indonesian guy in Seattle at Boeing. And he thought I was a lunatic. And he invited me down because I said, oh, look, I've got loads of stress engineers. Because I'd spoken to the guy that I'd met him. I'd emailed him. I didn't speak to him. And I'd flown out to Indonesia again. And I said, look, you've got no stress engineers. And I got 40. And he thought I was mad, but he invited me down there and I turned up with a red Mohican and a Savile suit. And we had a chat and I told him my plan. And he said, well, if you can pull it off, we'll take five. I flew back out to Indonesia. John gave me a questionnaire because there was no Zoom back then. So I flew back out to Indonesia. We did a test with all the guys. I videoed them all with a camera. And I, I actually threw away the film last year. We had like, I had about 150 rolls, if you remember the little yeah video films and i went into the city got a contract written up by a very very large law firm basically turning myself into an aerospace company and then i went to the home office and said look there is a shortage there is a shortage on the shortages list i've just set up a new aerospace company i need to bring my staff over to the uk and they gave they assigned me a lady whose name i probably won't mention just in case she ever picks up or they take away a pension. But I used to be able to phone her up in the morning and say, hi, I need three visas today. And she'd fax them to me and then fax copies to the embassy in Jakarta so my guys could wander along 
and get them stamped in their passports. And all of a sudden, I had an aerospace design company. How bizarre. I mean, I just, I <laughs> just the, the way that you have gone from from working in the city almost, well, doing fashion shows, working in the city to, you know, stalls and, and Carnaby Street to clubs and then to aeroplanes. <laughs> Do you ever, ever have any interest in aeroplanes? No. So it was just it was just the advert that you saw and the opportunity that yeah. you saw. Yeah. And I got to fly in a MiG. Yeah, that'll do it. However, I must admit that once I got in, I'd flown all over the place before. But once I got involved in the industry, I got on the plane one day and I started shaking. And even to this day, I hate flying. And I think the reason I hate flying is that I think, that, oh my God, I got involved in making aeroplanes. And now I've got to put my life in it. Yeah, really. So even today, I'm not very keen on flying. And how, how long did you do that for? I, I, that's... I did that for like seven years. Um, but in, the, the Indian companies, the big Indian companies started to move into the market because the Indian government wanted an aerospace industry in India for over three years. So we sort of got involved. And all of a sudden, I was competing. There was me and my merry band of 35 old men and women which was providing a very nice lifestyle for myself. I can't, you know, really. And then all of a sudden I'm having to compete with two companies that between them had 215,000 staff at the time. And they weren't really interested in making money. They were interested in market share. So I was getting edged out and I was like, what am I going to do next? And somebody asked me to do a consultancy. So I rocked up at their office and there was a couple of young Polish kids there working they, they were over here on a work visa and they were really intelligent and i really got on well with them and i really liked them so i flew out to poland on a friday and bought rented an office and set up a recruitment business in poland met my ex-wife on the sunday night in a bar offered her a job on the monday morning <laughs> <laughs> came back to london rang around and said look i'm moving into a new area and like literally two days later I got a phone call from GKN from somebody from their automotive division, a guy called Alan, who was like, I need a hundred welders up in Telford. And apparently when the aerospace division had problems finding stress engineers, you sorted it out. So are you going to sort this out for me? And I'm like, yeah, right. And he's like, what do you know about welding? I'm like, well, actually I know nothing about welding, but you're not hiring me as a welder, are you? He's like, no, I don't believe you can do it, but I've been told to call you. So like, well, give me 48 hours and see what I can come up with. I phoned Gosha and I'm like, can you get hold of, because I've always read a lot. I've always been in, you know, I mean, I read, probably read a dozen newspapers every day from everywhere from India through to the Middle East, not just English. I read like the Economic Times from India. I read Hazats from Israel. I read Al Jazeera. I read the Washington Post, the Economist, Financial Times. I've always done that. So I said, can you get hold of the... Solidarity, the dance can find out how many welders they've got in the shipyards that aren't working at the moment. She came back to me and said, there's about six, 700 there that ain't got jobs. So I phoned Alan back and I'm going, yeah, a hundred's no problem. I flew him out. I said to him, all right, well, look, I'll bring you out to Warsaw in a couple of weeks time. And he's like, well, yeah, fine. And if you find me one good person, maybe we can discuss how we're going to do this because I've never been to Warsaw. So I hired two coaches, brought all these guys down from Gdansk walked around Warsaw, found a garage that was closed for the weekend, rented it off the guy, 
hired some uh, welding kit and bought a ton of scrap steel. He landed, all these blokes walked in and they all had their welding, their coding books. And the thing about welders is if you've got an up-to-date coding book, you can weld anywhere in the world. And Alan was like, I ain't seen those in years. No one in England keeps them up to date anymore because they don't have to because there aren't enough folders. So we ended up hiring them all, uh, which led to us having to then move 100 welders to Telford. Um, so I'd grown my team in London by that point. So there were four young ladies and one guy. And we went and my ex-wife was a translator. So we translated all of the books, all of the documents, all of the signs on site, everything into Polish. And we put people in with the training session and the induction that spoke Polish. So everybody got spoken. And then and then we put a girl that was there for five months and her job was to make sure that the guys didn't cause too many problems or beat each other up and deal with the screaming drunken fights on Friday and Saturday night. Magda, she was brilliant at it. I loved her deeply. Not like I love my wife, but I love to do things. An amazing person. She could diffuse a row so quickly. And then I had to find the houses. And we looked after all of the guys. So if we, we would rent a four-bedroom house and everybody would have their own room. We worked out that you could do deals with. Back then, if you had a bicycle, you could claim, because you were working away from home, you could claim £5 a day for lunch, four pence a mile for your bicycle, one pound a day for your newspaper. And that all added up, which allowed them to take home more money because they became expenses. And that meant that I'd kept my office in Indonesia that we'd run out of aerospace work. The, the office in Indonesia became my back office for the recruitment business, which we built up to about 140, 150 grand a week. And then one of my clients knocked me for 750 grand. Right. But they were not nice people. Um, they broke every law. You know, they called me in on a Tuesday and basically I thought it was a, a meeting to talk about more work and it was a meeting to tell me that they were winding up that on Friday and that they knew that I had two or three other companies and uh, they wanted to give me the heads up because I had young kids and they wanted me to get as much money out of my business as I could. But they were scar. You know, we had two guys working who a driver and a driver's mate couldn't have been earning more than 300 quid a week between them. And, you know, I mean, the second I walked out of the meeting, the next thing I did was phone up the liquidator and say, liquidate the company. You know, we ain't going to last past Friday and I I want to liquidate it. I don't want to be liquidated because at least yeah. I get, keep control of how we do it. And the boys phoned me up and this company made them pay for petrol themselves. And so they were made to pay for the petrol themselves and then put the receipts in with me. I would pay them and then I would put an invoice in with the company. You know, we were going bankrupt. Yeah. Well, the second I put that in place, there's nothing I can do with money anymore. Yeah. Guys phoned me up and said, look, Jason, we're sorry to hear you've gone bankrupt, blah, blah, blah. We've got a £40 outstanding petrol bill. And I'm like, look, go put it in with, you know, go to HR. They know what's happened because they did it. Give them the 40 quid. I'm sure they'll give you the money. Got a phone call back. No, they told us to put it in with the liquidators. I mean, is it is it's kind of an, do you think it's inevitable at some point in your career that that that, that would would happen in in, in that Things you're doing happen. so much and and there's Things happen. You know, that's it. Things happen. 
you know, this wasn't particularly this at that particular time we were concentrating solely on that business. Yeah. It wasn't that I was doing a million different things. It was we'd concentrated on that particular business. You know, with the aerospace, I was in a business that it was at that point in the world where but at that point in time, the aerospace industry was the UK, Germany, France, America. And then other countries grew up or grew to the point where they could build and they wanted to build. And it's just, it's just what happens. Yeah. And then, you know, the recruitment business, yes, it was partly my fault. This company had been offered a £200 million contract by the government. They started to buy everybody in the supply chain up which was all of my clients. Then they turned around and said, everybody's got to pay on 90 days. The factoring company said, oh, look, they've got 200 million pound PPE. Everybody else started around and said, look, they've got this massive contract for the government. What nobody else realized was that they were beat. They had a plan to begin with, to buy everything up, move all of the debts into one division and then write them all off. Right. And then keep the rest of the business without any debt. Totally illegal. We tried to put a group together to try and get some sort of compensation. And I got a phone call saying, look, you've got a wife, you've got a couple of kids, you ain't got a near, anywhere near as much money as us. And we will wrap you boys around our fingers for years and it won't even dent our bottom line, move on. Yeah, sometimes, yeah. No, they weren't nice people. It wasn't, you know, but it's what happens, you know. Yeah. So what, I mean, obviously there is a, there's a, you're an incredible entrepreneur whether you like that word or not it's what, it is what you do because there's no there's no kind of one with me I kind of think right well this is what I do and this is this is where I'm going mm. but with you it's it's kind of you know any opportunity that comes your way oh. you you will you will grab it and and run with it which I think is is amazing but so what do you tell your kids then or, or what would what advice would you give to young people that are are kind of starting out and yeah have a bit of an entrepreneurial spirit you live a long time and enjoy it um you know i mean my i've always said that children rebel against their parents um i'm divorced my eldest son's idea of a great weekend is to find a think tank in america that is running some sort of program or ai competition and at 16, throw himself in against people that are working for, oh, it's not Facebook anymore, is it Meta? That are working for Meta or Alphabet. And his idea of an, a brilliant weekend is to compete against these guys for coding. When I asked him, Easter Bank, Easter holidays, I said, what are you doing? I'm trying to break the, the Chinese firewall. <laughs> I'm like, what? He goes, I don't think it's fair. I'm trying to find a code and write a code that I can break the Chinese firewall so the Chinese people can see what's going on in the outside world. He's 16, and that's his idea of a good weekend. Well, that in, in that tense, it was actually two weeks. He didn't do it, by the way. But that was his idea of a really good weekend or a good week was to sit there and code. Yeah. Do what you've got. Do what you want to do. Follow your dreams, but remember that they don't always work. But unless you try, you'll never know. Yeah, absolutely. You know, don't give up. I mean, when it all goes tits up, get up and start again because you are alive. I know it's, it doesn't seem like it. You know, I mean, I, th I still think I'm 16 when I look in the mirror until I see the beard. 
we're around on this earth for a pretty reasonable amount of time. There's plenty of time to do anything and reach for your dreams. Yeah. And your dreams might not be this. You know, you might love, you know, being a mechanic. You might love being a welder. You might, you know, I mean, my brother's an artist. And runs a, my brother is an artist who paints phenomenal work. You know, I mean, some of his paintings sell for five, six thousand pounds, seven thousand pounds. But because selling paintings is not always a great income, he has a small painting and decorating business down in the South Downs. And while he is an artist, he's got two kids and he gets up in the morning and he'll work 10 hours a day up a ladder, far harder than I do, grafting. Yeah. Yeah. And they've got a beautiful cottage on the South Downs and it's all very, very nice. But we live a long time now. Don't pigeonhole yourself. Don't think that this is what I'm going to be. Be what you want to be, you know. But that doesn't mean that you've also got to do it now. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. I totally agree with that. Totally agree. No. You know, we don't we don't all have one thing that we're going to do forever. No, but do what makes you happy. Do what you can. And if it doesn't make you happy doing what you're doing, well, then do it until you've worked out what does make you happy and then go and do it. Have you found that yet, Jason? Have you found it? What are you doing now that's making you happy? I have a couple of projects on the go. (laughs) Look, I love what I do. I love my team in Indonesia. They are the most brilliant people. They graft when I can't graft. They look after clients. They have turned into the most phenomenal team. And... We're now working with the management team out there to grow the business again so that when I finally lose my marbles, they will be able to run the business for me or run the business and grow a business that hopefully will span the world and cultures, not span the world like Google, you know, I'm not looking at that, but a business that is inclusive, that has people from all walks of life, from all religions. And that's very big because, you know, I work in a, Indonesia, which is largely Muslim, and I'm not. And I just like the fact that I've created something where people get a start in life, people can use working for our company as a step. Yeah. Because if you've worked for a company that speaks English for three years and you spend all day looking at CVs and working with me, you can get a really good job because your English is fluent. Yeah. Because you've got to work with me every day. Your English is going to be fluent because my Indonesian, my Bahasa is crap. So is, it's, it's still generally uh, recruitment, though? It's still No, it's not recruitment. I mean, we do recruitment. We also run um, Purple Fedora with the amazing Gareth Wax, because I'm sure he'll probably listen to this at some point. And my team run the back office of his operation, or it's our operation, but he's the man. Um, so tell me, what is, what is the, the overall... I, I know Gareth vaguely, and I know a little bit about Purple Fedora. Tell me what, what it is. What does it do? We're a, it's a sort of marketing company, but it's very specific. It's about enabling people to use LinkedIn, one for, as Gareth says, social proofing, and secondly, as a means to connect and do business. But like everything else, you know, I don't believe that you can make a million pounds on LinkedIn by doing these posts. It's like everything else. It takes work. It takes graft and it takes luck. And what we do is we try and help you use LinkedIn as, you know, Gareth calls it social proofing. The idea is that it it shows people, you, you, you use it to show that you and your business are 
good at what you do and you add value. Yeah. And what we try and do is make sure that that message comes across. We also build, run and manage people's e-commerce platforms. So we manage about 10 and a half thousand products. We do their social media. We now do video. I've got some young people in my office who I don't understand what they're talking about, even when they're speaking in English, but they do the Google AdWords and they do uh, metadata and yeah, stuff, like, stuff like that. Yeah, but there's, enough, that. there's enough there that's keeping you occupied um, oh. or, or are you going to be moving on to a different area again soon? You know I am. I'm out in Portugal <laughs> looking to buy a bar. So you're going back to, you're going back to bar work? If I manage to pull this off, it's going to be about 400 seaters and I'm not going to be the owner. I'm going to be the guy that put the deal together and I will be managing it. But it is, if we pull it off and I get it all right, it's 400 seats, you know, it's 400 covers. It's not a baby project. No. Um, it's going to really fill up my afternoons because in the morning I'm working with my Indonesians and doing my stuff in Indonesia and talking to those clients. And then come one o'clock, I'm going to have to manage a restaurant and bar in Portugal where I still haven't learned the language and deal with the internal politics, which it has taken me five months to get my head around. So is, is, um, so are you going to be living out there then is that is that the plan that you will i will live out here i will float around so my life will be between london portugal and bandung in indonesia wow i will be living on a plane (laughs) yeah don't get too stressed out though no 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 my doctor knows this now i can phone him up and she gives me lots of valium (laughs) yeah (laughs) i've done flights like that yeah oh thank you so much for your time today jason it's been incredible talking to you you just have such a well i i could talk to you all day because there's so much in there i know that i know that that we've only touched the surface of what you've done over the last 30 years or whatever um so thank you thank Thank you very much that's very kind 30 years (laughs) i'm saying that because i know you're the same age as me yeah (laughs) look jackie it's been an absolute pleasure this is the first one of these i've ever done it's been really good fun excellent thank you so much for listening if you like what you heard then please leave a five-star review on whichever platform you're on and if you'd like to receive information about future guests or would like to know more about power to speak coaching then sign up for our fortnightly newsletter at powertospeak.co.uk and remember if you like all of us are in the persuasion business and need inspiration or tips on the art of verbal communication, then tune in to Leaning Forward with our friend Andrew Thorpe. Find Leaning Forward on your favourite podcast platform. Bye for now.